bombarded with sensation in their media all the time. And um, what they don't get enough of is human connection. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast. I'm Tom Richardson, and I'm joined, as usual, with my co-host, Joe Favrito. Joe, do you have Caitlin Clark fever like I do? I love what she's doing. I love the fact. Oh, that... don't be a buzzkill! Come on. Wow. Sorry, I interrupted yeah. your answer. No. Oh. Okay. I love. No, I love what she's doing, and, I, and I'm really intrigued to see, you know, how people are going to learn about USC basketball and more about UConn basketball and and all the other things. But, you know, she is. The thing that's being glossed over, it's it's great. And we we're here on the Friday. She had broken the record, the women's record last night against Michigan. Um, but the thing that is people are kind of glossing over is she's going to break Pete Maravich's record, which is even yeah. bigger than than kind of where she was. And and while it was great last night, I think, you know, the 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 path down the road, and by the way, there is no guarantee that she is not going to come back and play right. her fifth year because she's right. actually making a tremendous amount of money at Iowa, more from what people have said than she would make in her rookie year in mm -hmm. the WNBA. So um, I think it's great. I know uh, our, our friend Keith Dawkins at the Harlem Globetrotters has said she can come and play for them any day. Um, I would hope, and I don't know where Iowa is this weekend, I would hope by the time people are listening to this that somehow the NBA gets her to Indianapolis this weekend um, because she should be there you know, amongst the best of the best, and she is by far, has captured the world and is the best thing in college basketball for a number of reasons. Uh, as a friend of mine who's a former coach said, you know, the amazing thing about – um, Caitlin Clark is that if you went up to casual fans and said, do you know Caitlin Clark? They'll say yes. And then you would say, name three other players, men or women playing college basketball right now. They wouldn't know. And that's because of NIL and the transfer portal. And, Absolutely. and, yeah. and it's, it's hopefully it's a, a reminder of how great college athletics is and what college basketball can do. And I can't one of the great feel good stories of recent years, I would say, I mean, it's just so much fun. And the, the impact on media has been, yeah. Uh, phenomenal. Um, there's there's a related story that um, made me think about something that could be in the, the future. So you may know, I mean, folks listening, will, they'll get this pod next week. So the NBA All-Star Weekend will be over, but the NBA All-Star Weekend is this weekend in Indianapolis. They're doing something that I think is really creative. They're going to do a three-point competition mm -hmm. between Steph Curry of the NBA and Sabrina Ionescu of the WNBA, which I personally find to be the most interesting part of this upcoming weekend, and I will be watching. It occurred to me, Joe, that if NBA continues down this path of figuring out smart, into, and they've always been good at progressive initiatives and things like that, but just thinking how much fun it would be to have an all-star weekend of combined women and men in pro yeah, it's basketball. Easy. Like, why not? Like a <laughs> co-ed really, game well, or something like that? The reason why is because the pay scale, the WNBA, most of those players are playing overseas right now. Right. And, and they right. would have to come back. Now, right. the other thing that has come up is, are we getting close to the time where the WNBA would actually be a winter sport? And does it right. have to be Change the season no longer the alternative? Yeah. I agree. Um, but I still think that's a number of years away. And so is expansion. So anyway. Or maybe you bring back, you know, you bring in six or eight of the top WNBA players to do some of these contests or something. Anyway, it's an interesting thought. I, I love the fact that women's sports is growing so well right now and that, um, there's an individual who will 
uh, is transcending the sports business. I mean, she's mm -hmm. really become a cultural phenomenon in America. It's fun to see. Anyway, let's get to our guest because we have a lot to talk about with someone who's such such a fascinating career um, with stops at CBS News, leadership positions at CNN. He's been an entrepreneur. He's been a consultant. He's been a and still continues to be a board member at some interesting places. One of the great names in media of the last 25 years. Some of you may know him because he's been uh, fairly out there because of his positions. Uh, but we're talking about J John Klein. John, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, you guys. We're so pleased to have you. And I neglected to mention what you're actually doing now, which is one reason we wanted to talk to you. Um, John has always had uh, some involvement in sports, I believe. You can talk about your background in a second. But he's doing something that's so incredibly interesting right now that is really at the heart of some of the tumult we're witnessing in sports media. And that is how do you reimagine sports viewing experiences for the next generation? This has been a topic on this pod through the years, as any listeners know. It's a big issue in my digital media class. Um, I was reminiscing, John, just coincidentally, we did a, my class this week was a deep dive on streaming. And I actually showed the class uh, from some slides from the pitch deck from overtime sports from about five or six years ago, where they talked about some of the issues that I think relate to the founding of hang. Um, and it was so interesting. It was basically the idea of, you know, I think they described as plopping in a broadcast feed uh, into digital and thinking that's the solution. And I know that you have feelings about this because I've, I've read your comments. So anyway, um, John, a, a few years ago, co-founded a company called Hang Media. And I want to make sure I get a couple of descriptors right to set the stage for the convo. Um, Hang stages virtual watch parties where fans watching games on TV can watch games on TV alongside famous athletes and celebs. On LinkedIn, it's described as the best way to watch sports on TV. And... Um, there's just a, a really interesting angle here that is a bit of an obsession right now for any sports media pundits, academics, executives, because this is really what the challenge is in the business right now. So, John, thanks for thanks for being here. Why don't we start, if you wanted to start with the hang and then use kind of references to your past about the, the influence to get uh, in with, with, with the startup. Sure thing. And, and, you know, Tom and I first met what, 25 years ago, maybe when Something I had like that. Yeah. It was the first streaming uh, platform uh, yeah. a destination was called the, the feed room for the old for the OGs listening in digital media. The feed room was a thing yes. for a while. I remember being at a meeting with you at the PGA tour in Florida to pitch that. Yeah. I don't think we got the business, but we tried. No, there was a lot of business we didn't get. We got a lot of business. We got it profitable and we sold it. But it was, you know, timing is everything with startups. And, uh, you know, we we just knew people were going to be um, doing a lot of streaming and yeah. uh, uh, p potential investors and business partners used to look at me. This was 1998 and say, the problem with your plan is people don't watch video on a computer. They watch it on a TV, John. It was like, right. okay. But yes. then you and I, I think we're also involved in the very first ever direct-to-consumer OTT product, mm -hmm. which was in 2004, CBS March Madness Online. Mm 
Mm-hmm. I pitched, mm-hmm. this is not hang, this is through feed room. I pitched my friend, Sean McManus, who is just now retiring as the chairman of CBS Sports, but he was the president of CBS Sports back then. Right. And I had been executive VP of CBS News, so I had come to know him. I pitched him for five straight years on the idea that, you know, the opening rounds of March Madness are four sets of four simultaneous games through those first two days. And at CBS, we could only broadcast one game at a time, linear. So I came to him, I said, you know, there's this thing now called streaming and you can get consumers to pay you to be able to watch whatever game they want and dial it up on their computer. And he said no for four straight years. And finally in 2004, he said, okay. And we launched it. We got, I think about 10,000 people paying $10 to to watch any game they wanted. It's now a $100 million annual business CBS March Madness Live, I think is what it's called now. Right. So yeah. it, this goes back a long way. And if you're patient enough, boys and girls, you know, <laughs> your your vision can, can come to reality. Now, now Hang um, sort of makes another leap forward, which is all about audience interaction, because Gen Z fans expect to be participating in their media, whether it's the commenting or liking a thing, or it's actually posting a video or being live. And, and so that's, that's what hang is all about. And, you know, I got the idea for it uh, because I've got a 23 year old son uh, who's a massive sports fan as I am. And I love him, but I hate watching sports with him because for him, the game on TV is just the excuse to pick up his phone and track his bets and his fantasy and give his friends a hard time and watch highlights and comment on Twitter and all that stuff. And I just want to watch the game. Right. And, but it hit me with my background in streaming and the relationships I've developed over the years in media. I could fill his the palm of his hand with his heroes and they could watch the game together. And we launched Hang, we did a, a, a beta, well, actually not even a beta, an alpha, just to test the concept, to find out would athletes be willing to do it? Would athletes like it? Would fans like it? What would the experience be like? And so little known fact, the very first alpha test, the very first version of Hang ever was Eli Manning watching a giant game on TV alongside one of his teammates, Sean O'Hara. And he loved it so much. This was a year before Manning cast. He loved it so much. He first took us around to investors, um, but we hadn't done anything except that. So, you know, to to get funding for a a startup, you've got to actually have a product working. Um, So then he went and he turned it into the Manning cast, which has helped us because it legitimizes this idea of alternative ways of watching sports on TV, which every network, league, team, and now player is obsessing over how do we pull in Gen Z fans? The difference between Hang and the Manning cast is that ours is two-way. In ours, we're like the Manning cast in which you, the fan, are the co-stars along with the athletes and the celebrity fans. Right. So that's that's what we're doing. We've had we've staged over 50 hangs now over the past couple of years, 400 plus top athletes. I mean, everybody, Deion Sanders and Debo Samuels and, uh, you know, Valdez Scantling, who, who had a big catch in the Super Bowl. And I mean, the, the roster is endless. Jabbar, um, you know, uh, Bill Walton among the old timers. But we get a lot of current players because 
current players are the ones who the Gen Z fans know and the young millennials right. know. You really don't know all time greats, you know, the Hall of Famers. And so, um, you know, we get guys on their off nights watching their opponents on their bye weeks. Um, we've done a range of sports. We did Indian cricket. We had four million fans show up to watch Indian cricket alongside famous Indian cricket players during the World Cup back in the fall. And it's all sponsor supported. So Toyota wanted to reach Indian expats in the U.S. And we delivered an audience that was 90% U.S. Indian expats. And that's among the many advantages of direct-to-consumer digital distribution is the targetability of the audience. And, and in a nutshell, I would, I would say to you guys, although the distribution paradigm of sports mm. has very quickly morphed from linear to direct-to-consumer via streaming, the marketing models have not morphed in that way. Marketers are very slow. They're still obsessing over their Super Bowl ad. Right, it's, yeah. it's so primitive. And I was with a group of top marketers in Vegas last week, major people who spent tens or hundreds of millions of dollars on the Super Bowl. And I, I just asked them how, like, you guys are talking about the change, but you're still thinking that a Super Bowl ad is the answer to your to your problem. Yeah, yep. for $7 million for 10 seconds. And, and just to be clear, John, this is agnostic of rights. You don't have to, no one has to sit there and watch. It's not like, I mean, the Manning cast, you actually have the ESPN broadcast next to it. This is on a second device while everybody is looking at a screen, watching what's going on. So that's, you, you're not beholden to anybody. You could do it to literally with anything as long as everybody's watching the same thing, correct? That's exactly right. We wanted to avoid the egregious loan sharking rates of, you know, the use. <laughs> wow. Loan sharking. Wow. I mean, they, yeah. they, and, it's, and, and, you know, having come out of the networks, I totally right. the network right. mentality. But right. the fact is you don't need it. Everybody's got it on their TV. They're right. giving the product away for free. Why would I pay? Yeah. Now, if it turned out that you needed to have the feed in the room in order to uh, grab hold of users and, and hold them, then we would have to rethink that. But the truth is our average session in a hang is one hour and 20 minutes. Fans who have a reputation for being short attention span are sticking around. Why? Because they've never seen anything like this. They can't believe, as I couldn't, when Eli Manning said my name, I, I turned into a 12-year-old. <laughs> You're thrilled. And, you know, I've spent too many years in media um, and the entire goal with any media property is to generate an emotional response in the viewer or user or listener. And this happens instantly. It happened to me. That's how I knew Hang was an amazing idea because I was feeling the electricity. Every single yeah. person who comes into the Hang, you see them, they're pulling their kids in. Oh my God, look, it's whoever, you know, they're here, they're talking to me. And, and that just... It's, it's so fun. It makes it so worthwhile to do. So I, I spent most of my career uh, in news. You know, I, I started as a news writer at CBS. I ended up as executive VP at CBS News, overseeing 60 Minutes and the primetime programming. Then I was president of CNN uh, for six years. Um, but in between, I've done these startups, but I was never 100% in the sports business. And I'm having such a blast because I love it. And sports. by the way, and this isn't, just for sports. You oh, could do this no. for the debates. You could do it for live streaming concerts. Well, the the Academy Awards in, in a month, yeah. you know, like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's any communal viewing experience. Yeah. Right. 
that has to be live. I mean, it ha but um, so it's funny. This has um, it's all about timing, as we we know in, in this business, because there was an iteration of this that actually my colleague, fellow uh, professor at Columbia, Chris Lincheski, and I were involved with, with also with Neil Pilson, oh. and um, yeah, uh, Yahoo probably ten years ago. It was called Coach's Cabana, and it was the same idea. And it was the wrong time. And yeah, it's great that, that this has come along. And we had Barry Switzer and all these coaches. Literally, it was Barry Switzer. He still does it, I think. Sitting in his parking lot in Norman, Oklahoma, in a cabana, watching the Oklahoma football game. And <laughs> it was people were watching it in the stadium and not watching the game. And it was just not the right time. And now, obviously, it's streaming and, and it, it, uh, it fits into everything. And that was the original idea. So, um, you know, and I've heard through you know, our mutual colleague, Leslie and Wade, how great this is. And um, I'm glad that it's finally found a home and, and will continue to grow, Tom. Yeah. Uh, yeah. John, John, so what's the, what's the, uh, take us through the use case. Somebody hears about hang, they're getting a mobile app. I assume it's through primary consumption through mobile app. It, it's actually, yeah, it's mobile web. It's mobile, a, mobile web okay. app or anything. Yeah. You want to eliminate right. every possible speed bump. Okay. Um, and, and so more, most likely you follow an athlete or you follow right. a team or, or something, and you'll come across a, a, a video that the athlete or celebrity has recorded for us. And they post it to their followers on their platforms, but that's not enough to really give you the footprint right. in the conversion. So we then amplify those, uh, according to the targets that our sponsors want and, mm -hmm. and sponsors, you know, real blue chips, Toyota, Wells Fargo, Dave & Buster's, Academy Sports and Outdoors, Coke. Um, and and so they they lay out who they're trying to reach, and then we reach them through targeted digital marketing. And, um, and you'll see this video, oh my God, click on a link that's right there, and you sign up to be either on camera, face-to-face uh, -face with the athletes, or in a text chat. Um, and you, you know, just sign up with your name and your email and, and, uh, mobile number and your zip code. Um, so you do, do you, just, if, uh, just as a matter, matter of, um, fact, you do have to register to get access. Yeah. To be on participating live. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Can, no can you just skulk and just not register and just watch? You can watch the live streams. So we live okay. stream these, right. uh, on, uh, YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, Right. Um, discord um and for those people you're not signed in or anything like that okay got it you also don't get to participate and post questions and win right is you know we have giveaways yeah and that secondary audience and wouldn't theoretically be as valuable as the signed in audience where you're getting some information that would help the sponsors that's exactly right yeah that, okay and they're getting less and less valuable now it's, it's really amazing just in the past year with the advent of ai um, and I ran an AI platform that Apple acquired a few years ago. Uh, and so it's it's really interesting to see now how it's taken hold. But there's an expectation among marketers that they can uh, generate a lot more data, uh, a lot more insight, and a lot more connection to consumers if they get that PII, you know, that personal identifiable in information. And so that's what they want more than just pure eyeballs. Right. Mm -hmm. God, that's amazing. You know, it really feels like, the, to Joe's point, like the timing of this is perfect. Timing. Like right now, 2024, like this is game on, you know? Yeah, and I think with a startup, um, 
timing is the most terrifying aspect because you've got control over your product, how you market it. If it's not working, well, you iterate. So you're in control of all of that. You have no control over the secular headwinds or tailwinds. And you just have to hope. And um, I've had other startups where the timing was a little off. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, we were, the feed room was basically YouTube six years too soon. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, with this, and so what you have to do with a startup is if you sense that the window of opportunity is open, you have to go all out, all right. in yeah. um, it, at that point and you know, push your chips to the middle of the table. You have to be prudent about your expense. You don't want to run out of money in case you're off by a few months, but you you, you want to lean into the opportunity as much as possible. There's no tomorrow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, in terms of expense, the business expense, obviously, you got to pay the athletes, you got to own the technology, but let's look at March Madness. So is it possible, maybe not this year, but I would imagine somewhere down the road where there are 64 hang rooms for the first round of March Madness, each with their own, you know, bigger, obscure person? Or is it is it better to have one March Madness that – so what, how does that scale work? Is it is it profitable if St. Peter's has six people in the room and, and Duke has 7,000? How does that work? Yeah, the, the, the expense side of this is really low because streaming is very cheap. I mean, and, you know, way cheaper even, you know, than when I launched the feed room 25 years ago, it's, it's really next to nothing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the athletes, uh, we don't really pay that much. The athletes mostly want exposure. They want to build their personal brands. That's an awareness that's come around. Thanks to Michael first LeBron, Serena, they, these other athletes are taking a look and even, you know, um, uh, you know, Nate Burleson you know, who was a middling pro has a phenomenal flourishing broadcasting career. And the other players see that they're also conscious of how finite a career is more so than they used to be. And so they want to position themselves and be known. The other part of it is that they really love becoming known as humans. You know, uh, I, when they go on, you know, Stephen A's show or something, or uh, it's all that fronting and, you know, battle yeah. and all of that stuff, but that's not them. And then they're gone. You know, they're on for three minutes and then they're gone. Here, you're watching a game that unfolds over the course of hours. You can't posture for that long. The real you comes out. And although there's a lot of camaraderie and fun, you know, we cast these with chemistry in mind. So we look for teammates and, you know, guys who've known each other a long time, and that's really fun. But eventually, they and the fans want to have real conversations about stuff like mm -hmm. how do you manage your career after you leave or how do you manage all this money you've come into? We had a great conversation with three University of Georgia players who were watching the college football championship game last month uh, about NIL money and, and how do we know how to manage it and how do we think of what the other guy made versus what I made and all of that stuff. And they're talking about this with professional players who themselves have come into money, current NFL players, CJ Mosley, you know, like, and, and so that's a really cool um, uh, uh, experience that you really don't see anywhere in media. Some really good podcasts like the Pivot Sports podcast is, is great for that. Uh, and the Kelsey brothers and all that, they get, you know, you get into some good, but for the most part, there's not an opportunity for athletes to really be known in this way, certainly not uh, face to face with fans.
So that's why I think we've got this appeal to Gen Z. 60% of our users are 18 to 44, 60%. And and again, like they're supposedly so short attention span and everything like that. But my theory is that younger users are bombarded with sensation in their media all the time. And um, what they don't get enough of is human connection. And Mm -hmm. there was a point in my career where I was a very young whippersnapper who was suddenly put in charge of 60 Minutes. I was the executive VP of CBS News, and I was overseeing the genius creator of 60 Minutes, Don Hewitt, who was 75 at the time. And I finally got up the nerve. You know, this is the most popular. It was the number one show in America, wasn't it? It's the most watched show ever in television history. Right. And and it's been on 50 whatever years. But yet it's just super close-ups of people's faces, basically. There's nothing else. And I, I finally got up the nerve to say to him, so Don, how do you explain the fact that this is the most popular show ever, but it's so visually simple, shall we say? I meant dull, but I said simple. Right, said, <laughs> right away, he said, oh, that's because television is not a visual medium. I said, really? <laughs> he said, no, it's a medium for connecting humans to humans, and we are wired to read each other's faces. So if you're walking through, he used to use anachronisms all the time. So he said, if you're walking past Macy's window and they have all those TVs in the window and they're all playing the same thing, if it's a car chase or it's a boat or an airplane, nobody's looking, they walk on by. As soon as a face pops on, everybody stops and looks. That's how we're programmed. Well, I took that with me such that when I was president of CNN, I had us push in tighter on the anchors. And Hang is all about that same idea. That, you know, people say to us all the time, you ought to, you know, you ought to do like trivia contests and you ought to do this and you ought to do that. Gamify it because that's a buzzword right now. Well, we have that in its proper place. But what really drives the hang experience is face to face connection, which I think younger fans miss. Getting them out from under the helmet, getting the players out, letting us Mm -hmm. know who they are. Huge. So no matter how old you are, you're still a human and you still want to connect. Yeah, you made that um, point. Let me just do a quick follow-up, Joe, if you don't mind, because I know uh, John in that SBJ article that you shared with us, I think a fairly recent one. You talked about how league executives didn't necessarily get this concept, the, the one you just described, and I, I would agree with you, by the way. And you said, "Look, at, I forget. I'm paraphrasing. At the end of the day, the hardest part is the user experience." And you talked about the importance of actual programming thought and strategy going into this, to your point, even the the presentation, which most of us never think about. Like when we're watching, let's say news or sports on TV, you're not thinking that the producer's yelling at the camera guy, getting closer or tighter or whatever. Obviously people like you know that's happening. And it's interesting in sports that a lot of what's presented on television to this day is pretty much the same as it was 10, 20, even 30, 40 years ago. So I, I think it sounds like you're really onto something. And, you know, I could see how this would resonate with the next generation because they do have different expectations. John, and, and just off of that, the same thing. Sometimes the simplest concept is the hardest one for big brains to think about. Yeah. Why haven't they grasped this yet? Right. So, they, you know, they're, they're, they've got a lot of things to think about. I, I, I think the, there's, there's, the innovator's dilemma is one of my favorite business principles because it's so true. I've encountered it over and over. They're, 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 not, they're not rewarded for thinking that way, mm-hmm. first of all. 
there's got, they don't want to be the first, they didn't, you know, you don't get to be at a network for decades by saying yes, the first time John Klein pitches March Madness online to you. you know? <laughs> the opposite. Right. Yeah. So it, it and look and and he you know these guys they're they're smart they're talented but they steady as she goes is is their mantra. Well, that's a huge opportunity for a startup, you know, because a startup has a chance to illustrate the power of it and to prove it. And once you prove it, they'll work with you and they'll incorporate you. And we're seeing that. I mean, it, you know, one advantage to being as old as I am now is that you pattern recognition. You know, you just see you know, that how it all happens. And, you know, you struggle to prove it out, you prove it out, you make connections, you reward the, the your partners, whether they're sponsors or athletes or whoever, you, you and, and now they want to do more with you. And then it becomes an industry standard and suddenly everybody does it. And this is true. You know, when I was at CNN, we introduced the magic touchscreen wall on election night, right? Now, every newscast has it everywhere. Every sports cast has it, right? It's an industry standard. At the time, you would not believe the intense debate internally about whether we should be doing that. Doesn't that, uh, you know, diminish our right. stuff like that? But the trick is, I think, if you if you always keep the, the audience in mind, the viewer, the listener, the user, this is what Don Hewitt did. That he, he didn't let the rest of it clutter it up. I don't need a lot of bells and whistles. I don't need B-roll. I'm thinking about that person sitting in their living room who's probably doing something other than staring at the TV. And so I want them to listen to it. I want it to be, right? And same here. It's like, just think about the user and what they want. And and you, I was, I was about to say, you can't go wrong. You could certainly go wrong. I've gone wrong plenty of times, but you'll have a better batting average. Mm -hmm. Um. Question you mentioned Indian cricket and obviously the cricket world cup in some way, shape or form is going to be here this summer for yeah. a short period of time. Um, is this, has this been scaled internationally? Are there barriers to doing it in multilingual in other countries or is it because it's on the web? You know, you said people can tune in, but I mean, really specific, like could you do Liga MX? Could you do, you know, you know, the KHL? I mean, and, and what does that look like? Is that part of the business plan? Well, we are kindred spirits because we have already done Liga MX bilingually. We also did uh, Mexico versus Argentina in the FIFA World Cup last year bilingually. And we marketed specifically to uh, border counties in California, Arizona, and Texas. Uh, and we featured all-time great Mexican players as well as Mexican-American athletes watching the, the soccer. And then this year we had uh, for Messi's return. And then um, uh, we had former teammates of his uh, from Argentina. Um, and now all of this was targeted at U.S. audiences. Our our Liga MX stuff was uh, uh, it, it was um, during the League's Cup where the MLS plays the Liga MX. Um, and we were targeting Latin X fans, uh, 21 to 44 because uh, Coors Light was the sponsor and they and, and so we age gated and all of that. But the biggest obstacle to doing the international would mostly be privacy laws in, in different mm -hmm. places. That's that, there's no technical hurdle whatsoever. And we do get people we had Andre Drummond um, has been testing our self-serve model where uh, just like you could uh, schedule your own Zoom call, you'll be able to schedule your own hang. 
if you're an athlete or a celebrity or a fan um, and invite your friends to come in. And so we've uh, beta tested that with Andre Drummond and he pulled in DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine and uh, a couple other guys. Um, and he had a fan who was in Ireland who, you know, who was wearing all of his Drummond jerseys from all the teams Drummond had been on. And he stood up on camera and he just peeled them off one after the other. It was fantastic. And Andre was giddy. I mean, like he texted me after just like that. I, this is so fun. You know, this is Twitch for athletes is what he called it. Yeah. It's like, and he's a big Twitch guy. He's a clubhouse. What happened to clubhouse? I know. I know. So we could get into that. I have some thoughts yeah. on that. But, but yeah, you know, like he loved though, knowing his fans, that was a rush. Man. So yeah, international for sure. We, we, um, you know, when I can afford the lawyer bills, uh, you know, that we would need for, you know, doing it the right way uh, in compliance. Uh, last question for me on this topic, because I know, Tom, we want to, in the last 20 minutes, we want to get into the uh, other yeah, pieces of I've been, life. I've been chomping at the bit, ready um, to pivot this conversation to something yeah. that yeah. I can't wait as, to get into. As a startup, what hasn't worked that surprised you? Um, our, uh, the, 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 I'll start with what were pleasant surprises. Um, the, athlete cost is a lot lower and the athlete availability is a lot greater. Everybody assumed at the beginning, and a lot of them still do when you talk to investors and all, uh, that the hard part is booking the athletes. That is the simplest part because they do want to be known and they do want to get their names out there. Um, I, I think that uh, the, um, the, the marketing aspect of it, the generating a, an organic social following has been harder than I anticipated. And that's mostly because um, we you've, you've got to start really broad and then work your way in um, to, that is to say, you want to reach, initially, you want to reach a lot of people just so that you have a story to tell. You know, 800,000 people on average, you know, come to each event either in the live stream or in the room and all of that. So you want that, but, but that, it runs in in contrast to or in opposition to what you really want to do is is get super deep with specific audiences and so it took us about a year um to really start nailing that and just in the past 8 months we've gotten really really good at that and now ai is exponentially advancing our ability to know who the users are and what they're doing in the room and what they're doing after and all of that. And it's really fun to, to just kind of ride that, that, that rocket ship. And what's interesting though, is we've got a lot of 20 somethings working at our company and they're a little wary of the AI. They're, they're more cautious about it than I am. So I, you know, I'm more like, come on guys, jump on this and figure it out and let's start using it to do everything, both the kind of utility aspects of it, um, you know, processes and all that, but also, you know, what other great leaps can we make with it? And um, I think that's a mindset that I'm detecting among Gen Z, which is caution. And I think maybe it has to do with uh, formative years during the financial crisis and then COVID hitting. Um, I think they're less risk taking than us crazy boomers and uh, or some of us. Um, and so uh, that's a thing that we have to just continue to to press forward. on. Go ahead, Tom. Get us started for part two. That's that's <laughs> awesome. 
All right. So when I mentioned uh, many of the uh, highlights of John's distinguished resume before, I forgot to mention one that probably impressed me the most. <laughs> that was uh, John was a consultant to the incredibly successful Emmy award-winning show Succession, which anybody who listens to this pod knows I'm obsessed with Joe a little bit too. Um, so John, let's talk about that because we've heard this before of people who are consultants to shows. It's an interesting thing. Like what these shows are hiring actual experts on real life, even though this is a fictional show, to bring authenticity into the storytelling. Just talk about that experience and maybe we can, if you have any uh, specific uh, anecdotes from that experience you want to share, we, we'd love to hear them. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because um, you had you had emailed me uh, saying this morning saying, you know, you wanted to talk about tchotchkes and stuff. Right, right. As as your email came in, I was sitting there uh, texting Jesse Armstrong, the creator, really, you know, creator of, of course, fashion, um, <laughs> and uh, to specifically say, hey, I was looking around my office and I have all this these mementos of my many past lives, but I don't have anything from succession. So like, can you just like sign something and send it to me? Could be like an invitation to Connor's wedding or something. I don't or know. maybe, maybe, maybe Kendall's rap Jersey that he wore. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I don't know if I'll get anything, right. but uh, it was an incredible experience. What really struck me was uh, how, how devoted they were to authenticity. I mean, as you're saying, you know, it's such an amazing work of fiction, but it's so rooted in, it just felt oddly plausible and, uh, and yet stretched enough that, you know, um, they, so, so it was, they were real sticklers. They wanted to know, you know, down to like, what would Tom wear when he's, you know, talking to the advertisers, where would they have in, in the episode where they, uh, you know, it's season three, Kendall has blown them up with the revelation, uh, right. you know, cruise ship stuff. Yeah. Um, and now they're, so the question for season three was, how are we going to, what what are they doing? And I said, well, one thing they're doing is keeping advertisers on board, you know, so they have to stanch any exodus. And well, how would they do that? Well, Tom would be, you know, they would invite advertisers in and Tom would give a speech and he, you'd, you'd, well, where would they do that? What would they be eating? Where would they go? You know, and, and you go through all the things, you know, well, the talent would be circulating because that's, you know, the sizzle and all of that. So there was a lot of that. We would, we would blue sky at the end of every season, they would invite everybody involved to just like blue sky about what could happen next season. That was fun. And then the writers would go off and put together draft episodes. And, you know, invariably when I was at my busiest, that's when a hundred page script would arrive that you had to read like in the next day. But you looked at it for anything, both broad stroke stuff, nah, that wouldn't happen that way, um, to um, individual lines. The way you would say that is this. They would throw in a lot of what they thought was lingo, but it wasn't. And so you'd give them the real lingo. to. Mm -hmm. And then they also, you may have picked up on this as an avid viewer, there were a lot of little Britishisms thrown in. Um, and we caught a lot of them. Mm -hmm. oil influenced by influenced by logan i suppose well they were all brits all oh, yeah brits. Right. i'm sorry Every, the actors you mean yeah i'm sorry yeah. The, the writers were british the writers were so they were writing right. it right you know with they would talk about like well let me get you on my diary meaning their calendar right. or you know do you do you have the kit the right. what, the equipment you mean no. or shall they say shall all the time right. shall we do this, shall we get and I, I used to say you know americans say shall like in a um 
in a kind of a mocking way, like if they're <laughs> fancy, but right. we say should or can or right. let, so th- let's or something. So there was a lot of that, but they were phenomenal about accepting notes and processing and coming back with something so impressive, like, because the first drafts of these scripts were amazing. I mean, I would sit there laughing out loud and 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 this is hard to do with a, a, a written script um, to, to really feel the emotional pull as you're reading it. These things are intended to be acted, but they were powerful on the page, which I really appreciate because I only got into the news business to make money while I became a famous screenwriter. That was my original dream. I had written musicals in college and I love that. And um, the the news thing kept working and I ended up selling seven or eight scripts, but only one of them ever got made with my name on it. So I really appreciated the craft of it uh, and the sheer ability that they had. Yeah. What, what was the one example, uh, if you could think of one where you put it in here and it came out there? Like, Oh, I, they actually had me in, in the, the scene where, uh, uh, Tom has the advertisers come to. I love uh, it. Yeah. To the place. Um, While they're and, under attack downstairs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and they'd asked me for like a, like, well, what's the kind of thing he would say? And I just banged out like, you know, what he would say. And that's exactly what he said on the air. And nice. it's like, wow. That's like, cool. Cause, cause usually, I mean, that was, the only time that ever happened. They always, always could take a suggestion and turn it into, and, and I would always tell like, how do you do this? Where does that come from? Bore on the floor. What, what? Like said, and these are such like nice people, you know, <laughs> they really are. They're friendly. They're inviting. They're, you know, all of them. And it, but yeah, they've got something going on in there. Well, yeah. one, of, one of the guilty pleasures, I think that we all enjoyed so much were these fabulous locations. Uh, the scenes in Italy, the scenes in uh, in the Hamptons, uh, the Adrian Brody's private island, the 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 bachelor party in some godforsaken yeah. I don't know subterranean thing in New York. I think New York, whatever. But like, who like did you weigh in on any of that? Because I kept thinking, like, who thought of this stuff? Yeah, I didn't weigh in on location stuff that much. By the way, um, if you want to go to Adrian Brody's place, it's Montauk. It's that cliff walk in Montauk, which that's, and- Oh, okay. I didn't realize yeah. that. Right okay. there. Yeah. yeah. I've it's, been it's, to the, I've been on that cliff walk. It's a yeah. beautiful spot. It, yeah. It's gorgeous. And so, but they, they had phenomenal location uh, scouting and also the production designer. Um, when I, so we did um, the election night scene this last season where they decide, are we going to throw it? You know, are we going to call it for their guy or not? Uh, that, that was filmed over the course of three or four weekends at CNBC. They took over the headquarters. They revamped the whole thing and had to mask the fact that Logan had already met his fate. So they, you know, they're dancing around that because the crew didn't know that yet. And yeah. so um, the, there, the, um, uh, why did I bring this up? I'm trying to remember. <laughs> we're Location. We're, Oh, the the production designer, who's a great guy, who's worked on a lot of amazing shows, had just flown in from Norway, where he had been scouting that retreat that they go on mm-hmm. with Alexander Skarsgård's, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. um, and he was brilliant. But like that guy had just come back from there. And now he's standing in this newsroom that he had tricked out top to bottom in ATN logos and the like. And, and so 
um, you really had an appreciation for all the moving parts. Yeah. And it is like a traveling circus, you know, you're there, you're tight, you become best pals, and then they're gone. Yeah, that's acting. Um, I know, baby. Hey, um, uh, I know we got to let you go in a couple minutes, John. Can you touch on some of your other, I don't want to call them career highlights, but, you know, you touch, talked about being in the room with Don Hewitt and those things. Are there a couple, like, where you stand there and say, what the heck am I doing here? <laughs> Over and over. My, my my first, literally my first day on the job as, as executive VP at CBS News, um, I, I, I had been a producer and, you know, I, I had not managed anybody ever. And now I was in charge of the most popular show ever and math, not just Don, but Mike Wallace and Morley Safer and Ed Brown, yeah, you know, the Giants and now I'm their boss on paper. Um, you know, the first step is realizing you're not really their boss. But they, but on the other hand, they were really respectful of hierarchy. Like they had been around long enough to know you're always going to have somebody over you. So that week, if you remember that that movie um, uh, about the tobacco, um, uh, the tobacco case, you know, the uh, Brandon Williamson, yeah. yep. they had not been able to report that story. It was controversial. They had the Mike seen- Wallace documentary was actually just on Showtime this week, as a matter of okay. fact. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so they, had, you know, CBS had spiked it because they didn't want to get sued for a gazillion dollars. And uh, and then that week that I became executive VP, uh, the Wall Street Journal ran the article. So now we were free to do it. So we were going to air that piece that Sunday, the long awaited two years in the making piece. And I was the executive in charge of vetting every piece for 60 minutes before it aired. That was that job was screen all their pieces to, to make sure of legal considerations and stuff like that. So Don pulls me up there. He first we had had lunch. He took me to lunch, taking me to lunch. And he at lunch he said, "Kid, your job is very simple. I have ten ideas a day. Nine of them stink. You got to tell me which one doesn't." <laughs> so and then uh, then then I find myself up in the edit room, where it's just him and Mike Wallace, mm. and they play the piece, and then they hit the pause button on the tape deck and they have an argument over should we include this little piece of the soundbite from Jeffrey Wigand or should we not? And they go at it. And I, I may not have been an experienced executive, but I knew I was being set up. They were going to test me and ask me, well, what do you think? And that was my, what the hell am I doing here moment? <laughs> A week ago, I was just off making my documentaries and you know, I was really happy. And I just planned my answer ahead of time. And sure enough, they turned to me and they said, well, what do you think? And I said, you know what? Don's the executive producer. I think at the end of the day, I mean, both of these cases have merit, but look, you know, go with your gut, Don. I had no idea. I had no idea. And then, you know, you skip ahead to um, it's it's the uh, debate in LA between Hillary Clinton and uh, Barack Obama, and it's the hottest ticket uh, in in town. And I'm in the green room with Leo DiCaprio and Spielberg and Eric, you know, all, who all are kissing my butt because they get to be here at this thing backstage. And then I go across the hall and I'm with Barack Obama and then I'm with Hillary Clinton. And it's like, this is really cool. <laughs> like this is really fun. Wow, you know, that's crazy. And and then that you know on that election night, I mean speaking of succession election night on election night 2008, 
you know, the networks had been through a lot of um, episodes of, of prematurely calling elections wrong, like the election. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of um, uh, safeguards in place. And at CNN, uh, the rule was the president of the, of the network, that was me, would make the final determination as to whether to call the race for a candidate or not. And you, you so, you know, you went through a lot of, you know, understanding how the decision desk worked and, you know, what the processes were. But there came a moment where you had, it was like um, a NASA blast off where you have like, you know, go flight, you know, propulsion systems, you know, downrange, you know, communicate, everybody's checking in, are we go, are we go, are we go? And all the different units, I'm on, on a conference call, they're all saying, okay, we're ready, we're ready, we're ready. And they're all looking at me and I'm in the newsroom and everybody in the newsroom knows that I'm here to make that call or not. Nobody else had called it for Obama yet. So that's another consideration. You want to be right, not first. You get no credit for being first. You get a lot of damnation for being wrong. And they're all looking at me and I'm just like, okay, call it. He won. And we announced it first and 2 billion people around the world saw it. We had footage of, you know, villagers in Kenya with a giant screen TV there going crazy and all of that. So that was pretty, uh, that was a pretty magical moment. Amazing. We're going to move into our last segment with limited time left, but John, just one really quick um, response on this question. You were at CNN in the, I guess you could call them the salad days, you know, pre-streaming things were good for the network and the cable news business overall. It's an incredibly fraught business right now in many uh, on, on many levels. What do you th- just, just a quick response on this? What do you think the prospects are for cable news as we know it today by the end of the decade? I think it's it's a great prognosis for the brands. How those brands are delivered is beside the point. Right. Uh, it's essential, obviously, to their business models. But it's been my experience all this this time that. In a fragmented environment, strong brands have the advantage because people are confused. They just don't know where to go. And yep. so the, the the challenge, which I think Mark Thompson is, is embracing correctly, is to say that's the spot on the horizon that we're sailing to. Let's let's maintain the brand value uh, so that when we get there, we're, we, we put our flag in the sand and people flock to it. I think that's what will happen and with all of these brands. The weaker brands are going to have a tougher time. Yeah, yeah, and it has been hard for anybody to scale appreciably in uh, for all for all the disruptors and news. No one's really gotten that big. Yeah, you have uh, to emphasize yeah. the cost. You have to you have to understand you're going to be making less money initially. But you know, at the same time, streaming opens up the the enormous value of data. Right. You know, we didn't used to know who was watching CNN. Now right. they can know that. Well, over time, that's going to become much more valuable than an ad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we have to survive mm-hmm. to get there. Yeah. Okay. So we've got about five minutes left. Let's um, get into our questions. I- I'm thinking, Joe, we got to start with the Chachi question, which we don't usually do. But we're, we're for those listening, not seeing this, we're Maybe looking at John's choice. home office where yeah. we're seeing all kinds of interesting items ranging from Emmy, Emmy Awards to a little uh, other kinds of awards. So John, what do, what do you have to offer as your as your most cherished item in so the mix there? I, so I don't cherish the, the Emmys mostly because they're usually, you know, television is a collaborative business and right. they're always the result of a group effort. Right, right. Some amazing personal work that never got recognized for anything. And then oh, some of these are, eh, yeah. okay. 
Um, but you, you, we've got the Iraqi helmet that I got in Kuwait. Um, wow. I didn't, I didn't do that much wartime coverage, but I was in Kuwait about a month after the Iraqis had left and uh, we went into the oil fields that were burning and they had mm -hmm. left a lot of stuff behind. And that was a really cool adventure. Um, and I did, I mentioned, oh yeah, I mentioned Don Hewitt being one of my heroes. And he, when I was at CNN, he sent me this photo of his team at uh, 60 Minutes with a note that said, the team you've put together is as much a tribute to you as the one I put together is to me which was, wow. um, uh, you know, the, the kind yeah. of self-referential compliment he would make, but it was also like, oh my God, that's like Don Hewitt. Yeah. Um, boy, I yeah. really cherish that. And, and then uh, I have two other quick ones, which is here's a photo of, um, you can't tell, but it's taken in Brooklyn in the 1950s. And in that photo, you have Sandy Koufax and Larry King, who went to high school together, Yep. watching a demonstration of fencing that the Daily News somehow took a picture of. And it, it was <laughs> autographed by Sandy Koufax and Larry King because they stayed friends. Where, where did you get that? Larry gave it to me. So, you know, I worked with Larry at CNN mm -hmm. and he knew I was a huge baseball fan. Mm -hmm. And uh, he got Sandy Koufax. Wow. I also autographed Sandy Koufax baseball somewhere, but I can't find it. And then the final thing that I would mention is um, I cherish it for a different reason. And this is a CBS News golf putter. And it was given to me on my last day. I, I was at CBS for 16 years and I had done a lot of things. And it was on the one hand, a really sweet gesture by my colleagues because I had just started to learn to play golf and I'm still learning to play with, you know, what I play now, you could not call golf. But it also was like important to keep in mind that you put in all that time and all that effort and if you're lucky, you come away with like a, <laughs> you know, Perfect. So it's a reminder to like yeah. not overvalue and to put it all in the right perspective. Like yep. You're doing this for what you're getting out of it and what you can give to the other people who you're working yes. with, right? That's what you walk away with is the memories, the friendships. Yeah. That's the beautiful. Leslie Ann Wade, who you're talking about, we worked together in 1993. When I was um, making documentary, I've known Leslie Ann since 1981. So, there you yeah. go. So, yeah. you know, and 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 then I, I didn't talk to her for 20 years and suddenly yeah. 30 years, I think. And then suddenly I'm launching Hang. She reaches out and it's like old times again. And that mm. that's the best tchotchke of all. That's there great. You. All right. So um, we'll do uh, kind of brief answers to these questions, if you don't mind. Uh, first is, um, how do you keep up? What are your favorite things to read and listen to just to, to to know everything you need to know to do your job well? Yeah, there's like a billion things and it's amazing. I, I think a lot of the sports newsletters are great. My favorite yeah. one is John Wall Street. Yeah, really? excellent, yeah. He's so incisive and, and different, you know? It's yeah. like a different take. He's not just chasing the story of the day. Right. It's really insightful. Um, He's got to get him a better hat, by the way. That's yes, the it, yeah, that would be a good idea. But yeah, Corey's really great. And, um, you know, but a number of those, I mean, you know, SBJ Sport, oh, that, that, you, you got to read all of those just to know what the trends are, all of the marketing newsletters. And so I find newsletters more, uh, but then also there's a great media analyst named Evan Shapiro. Oh, um, I'm a big fan. Yeah. Right. Love him. He's just really, really good. Uh, and I worked with him. Uh, uh, we were both consulting a, another company uh, before I had Hang. Um, and he's just super impressive. Yeah. And there's for, the, for those interested, by the way, it's, a, it's he's on Substack, uh, free access. Uh, yeah. Although you can subscribe to the newsletter, of course. Yeah, he he's fantastic. And there's a guy named Doug Shapiro, uh, who is you could just follow him on LinkedIn. And you'll get mm -hmm. he 
he has, I worked with him at Time Warner um, uh, where he was head of strategy and uh, he's just got really great insights about what's happening in the world. I think the challenge for people who've been in this business for a long time is that a lot of them stop keeping current and that's death. You, you just, you, you gotta, you know, and, and I, the, the younger people listening to this um, might also at times feel overwhelmed, you know, cause it's a lot, it comes at you way faster now than it ever did, but you've got to stay current. Mm-hmm. And, and then just think about like, take a breath and think about, all right, how do I apply this to the areas that I know? You can't know everything, but what do you know really well? And how does this new trend impact that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's where innovation lives. Really well said. And I would argue, uh, John, to that point, that keeping up is part of all of our jobs. And don't think it's like you're not working. No, no. That's a, I, I spent a pretty good percentage of my day like learning stuff so I can do the rest of the stuff I really need to do yeah. better than I would otherwise. And I think sometimes people get, feel like, Oh, I, it, you know, there's too much. I can't keep up. It's like, wait, you're in the information economy. So what I, that doesn't really make sense to me. Anyway, that was a really good uh, piece of advice. And also you threw in a little of the career stuff there. That was um, excellent. Mm-hmm. Where, where can folks find hang? How do you want to promote it to our audience? Well, we're let's hang dot live, and uh, we're also, okay. and and on Instagram, uh, we're we're let's hang, um, or let's. I always these handles get uh, confusing sometimes, but uh, on on Instagram, yeah, we're let's hang live. Yeah, nice. So um, you know that's uh, and and we we refresh the Instagram page. You know, like we had Matt Sims uh, out at, uh, he's probably also a friend of yours, Joe, uh, cause he's in the Leslie Ann mafia. Um, he was out in Vegas walking around, just like posting videos and stuff and talking to Mike Lombardi and, you know, guys like that about, you know, the, what was happening. And so we have a, you know, uh, we're developing a really good sort of always on presence there. Outstanding. Joe, you want to wrap us up? That was a fun show. Really enjoyed the combo. Thank you, John. Um, yeah, yeah, once again, uh, we didn't even get to half the stuff. Wait till we get I to, know. To, I have, to, a, I have a list of questions that I, I, on page yeah. two that I didn't even, I didn't even turn the, the yeah. page over. <laughs> but once again, uh, you've been listening to The Cusp Show. Uh, I'm Joe Favorito for my co-host, Tom Richardson. We've been Let's Hanging Live with John Klein. And uh, although you've been listening to this tape, it was certainly uh, an education up and down. And, and we thank you for joining us. And once again, for all our listeners, check out Let's Hang. And we will see you guys down the road.